If you have your Bibles, just turn to John chapter 8. And uh, last couple of weeks uh, in our church have been tremendously exciting. I mean, last week, uh, and I just got, you know, text after text to people around the country and even around the world that just really got a blessing out of the 18 people that got baptized, you know, in our church. And there's so many friends and family here that, uh, you know, that we got a chance to uh, Got got the chance to see you know what we're really all about and uh, um, to be take part uh, and to see our church, and then uh, uh, the the last time before that we were together, uh, oh excuse me, uh, then last night you know we had our our hayride and a camp at Gary's and again that was a great time. Uh, so many families were there that we got to meet, uh, and we're looking forward to continuing to work through with that with them. Um, you know, uh, we are without a doubt uh, at this point having one of the greatest productive times uh, in our church that we probably ever had. And, you know, when you build a church, there's nothing you can do in a hurry. Uh, it takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of work. It takes a lot of patience. Uh, it takes a lot of dead-end streets. It takes a lot of things you start with that you think will pay off, and they don't. And, uh, but then in time, you know, the Lord just keeps directing you. You just keep doing what you do. And, uh, you know, God blesses it overall. And then God, through the whole process, will bring people to your church that will really help you in the ministry. Most people don't understand that churches like ours, God uses two ways. Obviously, God has a purpose for this church of, of what he wants us to do with the Word of God. And we all know that because we're all working, you know, with many people. Uh, we're seeing families, you know, like last night watching you, which I call work the crowd, you know, and really just, uh, you know, just really help put everything together for people, make them feel special. And, you know, and then the discipleship and all the things that we, you know, we work with and just helping people. And, you know, it's a thing where that's, that's the job that God has for us and it keeps unfolding itself like it does with the lifeline groups you know it's just um it's just many many different avenues that god will open up through the process and our job is to be cognizant of of those avenues and to take advantage of them now obviously the devil wants to thwart that and he wants to put fear in us like he like he tried to do and he did in so many christians lives and so many churches with the with the covert 19 pandemic you know the last couple of years and i told you then there will be people we'll have them here that will never come back to church again not because they're mad about anything uh but just the fact that they you know that when you stay out of church for a year a year and a half <laughs> if you think the devil's going to idly sit by and let that happen without it affecting you when god saved you and designed you to be part of a new testament local church you know what, there, there's things you need to learn about life. So, you know, God's plan for this church is being fulfilled by the people that are, are here. And then the other thing that God does is that he will use this church to bring people in who to give them a chance. So I call this church for many people your last stop. Uh, and it's a thing where he'll bring them in and he'll let them see the truth, the Word of God, what they really need to do in their life, and they'll stick around for a while, and 
because of their past history or because of their of what we're going to talk about today after a while you know they'll start to get discipled or they'll start to come around but when it starts to get when the spotlight begins to get narrowly focused on where their really issues are then they're gone so there's two aspects to any church but what you're seeing now is 18 years here anyhow 18 years a building and preaching is now finally paying off. And it's been a long process, but it's a process that I, I, I knew was not going to be easy or quick. And it, it takes a certain kind of mentality to build a church. Uh, we live in a society where everything has to be done so quickly. And, I mean, uh, we live in a society, when I grew up, you know, and I remember the first, this is dating me, but, Penny was with me. We, she lived right down the street. Penny Hansiger, we were, we were born in the same hospital together there. And she, she's 71, I'm 71. I remember back in Canton, Ohio, when the first McDonald's came into being. Hamburgers were 18 cents. Now, today you drive by a McDonald and it says 80 billion sold. Back then it was six. And I'll never forget, it was the first, in Canton anyhow, and I was just a little guy, it was the first fast food restaurant. Nobody knew what fast food was. Because families back then, you ate dinner around a table, you talked about things, dad talked about work, mom talked about her day, the kids all interacted, and you had a family dinner. But then somebody, I said, you know what, let's have a fast food so they put together McDonald's. McDonald's was the first one, and then somebody said, let's do a Burger King. And they lure you in by you thinking that you can have it your way there. And so you eat at Burger King so much, and then you get saved, and you actually bring your Burger King mentality into Christianity and think you can have it your way here. And it, it just, you know, and then the fast food wasn't fast enough. So then they had to put a drive-through through the fast food to get your fast food even faster than the fast food when you went in. And now you don't even, they got Uber drivers that will bring it to you. And now you can just drive through and use your phone. You don't even have to use money. Everything in our society is moving at a rocket pace. And that's why people are so impatient. When I was a kid, when I went to school, we all hated brand new blue jeans. They were dark blue, they were stiff, and you had to wear them for about a year before they got that faded look, you know, and you could, you know, and then you, 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 you wore them and then you looked cool. You didn't look cool with brand new jeans. No girl would talk to you. It, it, you know, in the thing where, now today it's all changed. You go to the Old Navy, you go to Walmart, anywhere you're going to go. You can get your jeans in any phase of condition that you would like them in. <laughs> now, when I went, you had Levi's jeans. You still have Levi's jeans, but you got 501s, 567s, 532s, 554, 444, 46, 357. Those were Magnum pants. And then you have, you have, you have everything out there. Everything is geared. 
Now, this is not, this is not a criticism, kids. Please, I love you, and I'm happy for you. We have a thing around here that when you turn 18 or so, you get a car. Your parents buy you a car. I'm all for that. But us older folks, did anybody buy us a car when we turned 18? When I was 19, for my birthday, I, I got my jump wing certificate. You know, I, I, I got my first car when I was a, probably a junior in high school. I paid $125 for it. It was a 58 Ford, four-door. Back in the day, to be cool, you couldn't have a four-door. Four-door was an old man's car. You had to have a two-door. The premier car was a 57 Chevy, two-door. I couldn't find, I had to get a 58 Ford, four-door. And I, 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 I drove it around, and I blew the engine up in it after a while, which, you know, what, you know, what happens. And then, then I got... But I, I, I got a job when I was a, I, I was working in a, I was working since I was probably in the sixth grade at a little mom and pop store. And I never quit working. And I, I remember I paid for those cars. I got a job. I paid for it. When that blew up, I got a 63 Tempest. And uh, when I grew up and got a real good job, then I got a 64 GTO. Come yeah, come on now, little GTO. <laughs> boom, 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 boom. And anyway, and then when that, came out, I got a 67 GTO. And when I got a really good job a little bit later on, after I got out of the Army, I got a 72 Z28. Uh, yeah, and, uh, but I paid for it all. And of course, times change now. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. I'm happy for you guys, you kids. You know what? I think you ought to get his head as much as you can. And if your parents can afford to buy you a car, I'm all for that. I, I, I do, and I, I, think that, I think that's great. My point is this. Times have changed. We expect everything on a dime today. We expect everything to happen just like this. And, uh, you know, not only can you buy faded jeans now, you can buy them with the knees ripped out. $89 for a pair of ripped-up jeans. Something wrong somewhere in life. And, of course, I, I kid you folks, I see, I see my daughter Jamie wearing them back there, not today, but every once in a while, or I'll see some of you wearing and I'll put my arm around you and I'll say, hey, I don't want to embarrass you, but at the end of church, go on back to the clothing back, back there and get you out a nice pair of jeans, you know. That's a joke, you know. You, you know? They don't laugh either. And in fact, they leave the church over it many times. But anyway. We live in a world that everybody wants it now. You know where you can't have it now and you can't have it your way? When it comes to the Word of God. And for any pastor anywhere, you know, when you can't do in a hurry is build people. You know, you give me somebody that's 20 years old and you just get saved. You know, I'm up, how am I going to undo 20 years of you doing your way in less than in six months? It takes a while. Now, it ain't going to take me 20 years, but you ain't going to do it overnight. And what you're seeing now, where our church is at, is the product of 18 years of just putting the Word of God out to you and, and then building people to help other people. And that takes time. And it doesn't happen quickly. And, you know, uh, and as you know, uh, it's paid off. 
and uh, in the men and women that have stayed here and have and have given themselves to the Word of God, and then God does the rest. And uh, as you know, the next couple of weeks, even more exciting things are going to happen. I I can't wait till next Sunday to lay this out for you and some of the opportunities that are are already coming our way. And over the next couple of weeks, I, I'll be laying out all the sections that we need to take care of once we get to uh, our our target time. So next week, October 31st, next week, Sunday, we're going to lay everything out. It won't be broadcast, so I I suggest that if you, if I almost said if you want to know, but if you you care, you need to be here. Now, we have some incredible opportunities uh, before us, like I said. Uh, I just finished a two-time leadership training. And uh, you know it's a it's a it was a, it pulled everything together. You guys that are preaching over at the rest home, and down at the mission, and the places that you're doing, I want you to know that we're you're under scrutiny, and not in a bad way. I got guys that have been with me for a long time: Zach, John, uh, Chris Schmidt, Danny, uh, that really understand. Uh, and we we want to help you be better. There's an idea in preaching, and there's a there's a there's a method to preaching. And most guys think that you get if you preach more messages, you know, you just become a better preacher. That's not true. If you're a, a bad preacher and you don't learn some things, you just continue to preach bad messages. And uh, I've had guys that were in my own church down at the mission you know, that have been with me for 20, 30, 40 years that preached down there. And I'll be honest, uh, if the guys in the mission weren't confused, I was. And I don't know what they're trying to say. In other words, we want to make you better. There's things that you have to do that makes everything work in the right direction. So I watch you young guys. Every time I hear one of you guys are going to preach and one of you guys are going to do something, man, I get excited about it. And when I know that my guys are there to, to watch you and to maybe critique you and to help you, I want to make you better. Down the line, once we get settled and once we get moving some things, I'm probably going to have a class for the guys. The girls can come too. And I'm going to take a couple of weeks and I'm going to really show you the fundamentals of being able to preach a good sermon. And if you will just take these fundamentals... And it's not you becoming me. It's you staying who you are, but following the basic fundamentals that will make whatever you do really good and where people can get something from it. But things are incredibly moving well here. And today, a couple of weeks ago, the last time we were together, we started, if you remember, John chapter 8. And we saw in verses 1 through 11, we began to see the great depth of the leaders of the nation of Israel in their sin and their ungodliness. We saw as we started chapter 8 that great story of the woman taken in adultery. And clearly as we came through that, we saw where he was completely being set up. We saw where the Old Testament leaders were actually who knew what the Bible said were violating that and then doing what they wanted to do completely devoid of what the Bible says they should do. And they got exposed. 
And then the next week, we talked about how that he stooped down on the ground, didn't we? And he wrote on the ground with his finger, the finger of God. And whatever he wrote, and we talked about most probably was Deuteronomy 22, 22, or maybe Leviticus 20, verse 10. They both basically say the same thing. But when he wrote that, whatever he did write, which is obviously one of those two, the Bible says they were convicted in their conscience by what he wrote. And then the last time we were together, I talked about uh, conscience. And I laid out for you what our body, soul, and spirit is all about. And I understand. A lot of this is very can be very confusing. And I, I, I've tried to make it, you know, and Thursday night we went back over it again. I'm going to talk about it again this morning. And as much as we need to talk about it, we certainly will. But I began to define each part and defining the terminology. And this is where the confusion comes in many, many times. We now know that the conscience will be the heart of man or will be his soul. And we know that because, and I told you Thursday night, you don't want to think of the spiritual heart of man like you think of the physical heart, which is an object that pumps blood through your body. And the, the spiritual heart is not a spiritual heart that looks like the physical that pumps spirituality through your body. The, 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 the heart of something is the main focus of it. And sometimes we lose sight of that because we think of our own heart. But honestly, you know, your heart is the main function of your body that keeps it all going. So when we talk about the heart of man, we're talking about the, the central part of him that is the most important part, which is his soul. And I showed you a couple of weeks ago that in Colossians chapter 2, verse 11, when a man gets saved through the circumcision of the soul, he separates that flesh from that soul, and now you become a new creature in Christ Jesus. We, we, we know that. Romans chapter 2, verse 29, talks about the circumcision for Gentiles in the New Testament church. It talks about the circumcision of the heart, clearly showing you that he uses them interchangeably. And that salvation... God gave us a new heart. Before that, our heart was deceitful above all things and desperately wicked, and who could know it? But once you got saved, the Holy Spirit of God came in, and now you are sealed with the Holy Spirit of God, and your soul becomes one with God's soul, and now you get the heart of God. And I made the example like Israel in Ezekiel chapter 36 or Hebrews chapter 8 or Hosea chapter 2 that when Christ comes back at the second coming of Christ, he gives Israel a new heart at the second coming. And of course, that is the aspect of the kingdom of heaven. You and I got that new heart, kingdom of God, the day we trusted Christ as our own personal Savior. Now, our soul is now sealed with the Holy Spirit of God, the heart of God now in us, that new heart, and uh, that heart God gives us will be perfect in the sense that it cannot sin. It's sealed by the Holy Spirit of God. When then through the mind, which we have defined as your spirit, a man through his mind will go against the Word of God and do the things of the world, then what he does is he develops a wrong attitude about or towards the heart of God. And again, we use the terminology which is somewhat misleading, and I don't care as long as we all understand it. We talk about 
us having the right attitude of heart toward God or we got a bad attitude of heart toward God. That's not exactly correct biblically. Our bad attitude of heart, as we call it, will be a mindset of the spirit that leads us to the world that goes, an attitude with the world that goes against the attitude of that new heart that God has given us. And we can do that. We can walk away. I don't care. However saved you all are, listen to me. You can walk away from God and never talk to him again, never think about him again, never do anything about him with him again, and still you're a saved person. It can happen. How does it happen? Because you develop the wrong attitude about the heart that God gave you. You take your spirit and put it toward the things of the world or the things of the flesh, and you simply walk away. And that's the mindset that we have. That we choose to walk after the flesh, Romans chapter 8, verses 1 and 2, instead of after the Spirit. Now, when we do this, excuse me, Mel, when we do this, then we know that we get conviction. Where does that conviction come from? It comes from inside our soul. How does it come? How does conviction come in your life if you're saved? If you're saved, conviction comes in your life because whatever you just did grieves the Holy Spirit of God. Now, where's the Holy Spirit of God? Is it in your body? No. Is it in your spirit? No. He's sealed in your soul. Most people don't understand that within your soul, which is your heart, you, you have emotions. See, we all think emotions are bad. Emotions are not necessarily bad. There are some emotions that God gave us that are legitimate emotions. When somebody dies, the emotion of grieving is, 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 is a, natural mo- uh, a natural process. You know, uh, sadness, laughter, all of those things are, are natural emotions. Anger. The Bible says anger is nothing wrong with anger as long as it falls into the Bible context that he that is with anger without a cause. See, Jesus is angry. So it's a thing where there's some natural emotions inside our soul that we have. Now, I'll, I'll, give, you, I'll give you another one. In Luke chapter 16, and we talked about this, you have the rich man that died. And the Bible says he was buried And now in hell, he lift up his eyes. Now, his body's in the grave. So whatever was pumping the blood through him is now gone. It's dead. The spirit that he had, saved or lost, the Bible says in the book of Ecclesiastes, has went back to God. So what we have in hell is his soul. And I want you to know, in his soul in hell are all the emotions that he had. His body has no emotions anymore. It could care less. His spirit went back to God. So there's no more decision-making process. Now all he has is the soul, which is his heart, the heart of man, that is in hell. And notice, he sees, he remembers, he feels, and he has emotion. He says, if you would just tip your finger in water and put it to my tongue... I'm tormented in this flame. That is an emotion. Then he says, I have five brothers. So he's got a memory. 
If you'll send someone to them, that they also come in his place. Now he's concerned. So he has the emotion of a burden. But his body doesn't. You see, inside our soul, which is the real heart of man, not some object that pumps spirituality, but the central core that when God made man, God made man out of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, there's your spirit, and man became a living soul. The soul is the heart of man. And that soul has emotions. Now, once you understand that, and maybe this will make it a little easier for you, this is why you'll find some of these verses and people have been sending them to me and asking, and, I, and I, I, great, I appreciate it. That's what we need to do. In Philippians chapter 4, he says, the peace of God keep uh, your hearts and minds uh, through Jesus Christ. So that's exactly right. Once you're saved, you want to make sure that your spirit doesn't go to the world and everything that your spirit touches goes to the soul of God. So what you do is you take those things that are of God and you put your direction to the new man that's in you and the Bible says that it's through the peace of God, that's the Holy Spirit of God and it keeps your hearts and mind. Keeps them from what? Following the world, see? Once you understand it, then all these verses kind of fall into a context. When you don't understand it, then you, you're left to thinking that, you know, your soul is a piece of a spiritual blob that pumps out, you know, spirituality. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 17. Uh, Paul, uh, 2 Thessalonians, excuse me. Paul talks about comforting your heart. Now, if your heart is sailed and, it's, and you're saved, and that is your soul and your heart, and it's perfect... Being perfect doesn't mean that it doesn't have emotions. Rose lost her mom last week. She grieved in her heart. How do I comfort her? How do we comfort her if her heart is sealed and it's perfect and, you know, it can't sin? It does not mean it doesn't have emotions. So how do you and I comfort her heart? You know what we do? We give her heart which is already sealed under the day of redemption, what the heart always needs to lift it up. And we pray for her. We give her comforting verses. We give her the word of God. And that's where the comfort lies. He already told you it comes through the peace of God. Where's the peace of God come from? The word of God. So when you see these things, you know, it puts it into an understandable context. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 4 says that, you know, that he's praying uh, the, 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 their heart, uh, anguish of the heart. Anguish is not because of sin. Anguish can be because of the fact that your world is falling apart around you and the devil tries to put all that on you and it, if, if you don't stay, if you don't stay focused, then it's easy to let the things of the world creep into your thinking. And that's why, you know, the, the picture of that is, is, is Moses back there when he's standing on the rock. And Israel's fighting the battle. <clears throat> when he lifts up his hands, <clears throat> picture of our prayer life, when he lifts up his hands, Israel wins. When he drops his arms, they lose. 
he got so tired because the battle went on a long time, his arms, it was hard to hold them up and they were losing. What did he do? He called two of his buddies on his cell phone. They ran over and held his arms up. When you go through an anguished heart because anguish is a natural emotion and you need help to strengthen you so you don't get the wrong attitude about the heart that God gave you, that's what we're here for. We hold up your arms. We help you. We give you the Word of God. And there isn't one of us. Come on. You're all saved. I love you all. Most of you, if not all of you, are really doing good. But you know as well as I do, we all have bad days. We all have days that if you had to get to heaven on the way you feel, you wouldn't make it. Now, just be honest. You know that's true. Now, how does that happen if you're saved? Where does that come from? You say, well, my soul is sealed and my soul is... Then why do you feel that way? I'll tell you why. Because your soul, your heart, has natural emotions. And the job of all of us, and sometimes we don't do it well on our own, so we got to help each other, is to keep that heart and those emotions within check that what are the right emotions and don't let the wrong emotions come in through our spirit. And that's what you're dealing with. You know, and I showed you that in time, a man or a woman, saved or lost, this can happen to now, you need to hear me here, they can reject the conviction of God, Holy Spirit of God, that comes through the conscience that pretty soon, after a while, sin doesn't bother them any longer. And in time, a saved or an unsaved person can get so far from God, and they're on their way to heaven sometimes, that they can no longer be touched by the truth of the Word of God. And you know what? This is where, and we talked about this, and this is what I want to talk about to you today. This is where 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1 and 2 says that people will sear their conscience with a hot iron. And yet you will find people saved and lost that have seared their conscience with a, with a, with a, with a rod of, of iron, a hot iron. You will find them in churches all across this country. Sure, you'll find them in bars. Sure, you'll find them at work. Sure, you'll find them in unsaved people. But you'll find them in God's people too. Are you kidding me? You'll find this in the leadership roles in churches all across this country. You'll find pastors that have seared their hearts toward the Word of God. You'll find deacons that their whole world is the power that they have of being a deacon in this church where everybody has to come to them to get uh, whatever they want to do. And they left the Word of God a long time ago, but they'll be there Sunday morning, Sunday night, and Wednesday night. Not to get the Bible, but to make sure you don't do something without asking them. You'll find it in all kinds of leaders, just like the leaders of the nation of Israel at his first coming. And as I've said, my favorite phrase to this thing is some things never change. So today, developing all of this, I want to take some time and talk to you about a seared conscience. What are the recognizable traits of a man or a woman, saved or lost, who will sear their conscience with a hot iron. What can you look for within your own self? 
Let's pray before we go any farther. Father, we do thank you and praise you for the Lord Jesus. I love you. We thank you for today and for the good folks that are here. We thank you, folks, for the folks that are on YouTube this morning and, and, it, and watching online, and we love you. We just pray, Father, that you'll give us everything that we need today. Put us under the blood. Give us the opportunity to see the truth of God's Word, and we'll thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. For our sake, we ask it. Amen. Now, the object lesson for our study today, obviously staying within John chapter 8, will be the leaders of the nation of Israel. We've come to know and love them very deeply over the last couple of weeks. And in particular, the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They have, without a doubt, seared their conscience with a hot iron toward God, the Word of God, and the Lord Jesus Christ. The last time we saw in John chapter 8, verse 9, and this is where we begin to look at some of the characteristics that you look for, they they were in sin and they got caught in sin. Not only, and the reason they got caught is because when they read what the Word of God said, they were convicted in their conscience. And the Bible says that they leave, but they never change. That is the first thing you want to look at. The main characteristics is that they get convicted by the Word of God, but they won't change. They won't change the direction of their life. Now, along with that, the basic characteristics of a seared conscience, all down through this chapter in chapter 8, is they totally are against the fact that God's Son is God's truth. Let's don't get caught up in the fact that it's the man Jesus. Let's put it where the rubber meets the road. Their problem is not with Jesus. Their problem is with the truth of the Word of God. Let's don't get this thing confused. Jesus was God. He was the truth of God. And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And I want you to see, this was not about Jesus. This was about truth. I've seen God's people over the years get so far out there that Like unsaved people, they're totally against God's truth. Yet they're in church every Sunday. Sometimes they're not. Sometimes they never go back to church. Sometimes they're always finding something else to do. But many times, from my experience, they're in church every Sunday, every Sunday night, every Wednesday. Now, I want you to look, and this is our text today, I want you to look at John chapter 8, verse 21 through 24. And we're going to kind of work this thing down here, and we're going to bring it to... So you can understand what to look for in the people that you deal with, but more importantly, in your own life. The greatest danger of a seared conscience is not the person that you're working with. The greatest danger of a seared conscience is you. So he says in verse 21, Then said Jesus again to them, I go my way, and ye shall seek me, and shall die in your sins. Whether I go, ye cannot come. Then said the Jews, Will he kill himself? Because he saith, Whether I go, you cannot come. And he said unto them, Ye are from beneath, I am from above. Ye are of this world, I am not of this world. I said therefore unto you that you shall die in your sins, for if you believe not that I am he, that you shall die in your sins. Quite an interesting little conversation here. You would think by reading it that you're having a conversation with unsaved people. 
You're having a conversation with God's people in the Old Testament, the leaders of God's nation. So here we see they, God's people, have gotten so far from God and God's heart, they have lost all reality of anything about God. Look at verse 21. Where I go, you cannot come. I'm telling you, uh, there are places when you get way out there, there's places that God is going to go. There's places that this church is going to go, you're not going to be able to go. Because the Bible says if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and that fellowship is the key to you and me going where God's going, (coughs) getting God's heart. And He's telling the people here, He's saying, you know, where I'm going, you can't come. They're going the wrong direction in life. And just like today, many of God's people are going the wrong direction in life, and God is going this way, and they're going this way. Look at verse 23. I'm from above, you're from beneath. I'm from heaven, you're from the world. There's the contrast for you. There's Isaiah chapter 55, verse 8, 9, 10, 11. My ways aren't your ways. My thoughts aren't your thoughts. Let me tell you something. Us in a natural state, Before we were saved, we could never have a relationship with God. You know why? Because our soul was sinful, and our soul was connected to our flesh, and God will have absolutely nothing to do with anything that's unclean. So God made a way for you and me to get saved, and He separated the soul from that flesh. And now we have the ability to fellowship with God. But even at that, God's people will choose not to have fellowship with God, not to walk His way, but go their own way. Why? Because they will not align their spirit to the heart of God. And in time, when they get convicted about it, they sear their conscience. You never see them again. Or you see them, but they're left out of ministry. They're not going anywhere. Amos 3.3 says, how can two walk together except they be agreed? You cannot. See? Now look at verse 24. I said therefore unto you that you shall die in your sins. For if you believe not that I am he, you shall die in your sins. Because you're so far gone and you've seared your conscience. As an unsaved man, you will die in your sins. I had a very hard week last week, I found out a friend of mine, my sister sent me the obituary out of the Canton paper, found out a friend of mine who, um, that I, I really, really, really loved a lot, and uh, that he had died. And I had not talked to this guy for probably 30 years. We worked at the Hoover Company together. In fact, he was my foreman. And we developed a good relationship, and uh, we became friends. I never, never thought that, you know, that, that he would cut me any slack, nor that I expect him to because he was the foreman I worked for him. We were, we were just really good friends. We did our jobs at work, but then we'd go hunting it whenever, and we, we were just really good friends. When I left Canton, 
back in 1975, end of 75, I moved out here and had lost touch with him for 20, 30 some years. He never forgot me. And when he, he went to the old Canton Baptist Temple about five years ago, and he wanted to know what happened to me and where I was if they knew. Well, they, they don't even know who I am there anymore, but somebody remembered me. And I don't know how he got it, but he got my phone number and he called me on the phone all the way from, he lived in North Canton. And uh, he said, Bob, I've been trying to get a hold of you. And he says, uh, and I told him that we go back every year and he made me promise that we would go to lunch together or breakfast together. He says, I just want to see you. I want to talk to you. So sure, I got in, I called him, we hooked up that morning. And he told me, he said, you know what? <clears throat> and I didn't know this. And remember, he saw a great contrast in me because I went there as unsaved and somewhere in the process got saved and then he saw the other side of me. And he sat down there and he told me, he says, you know what? He says, I just want you to know, he says, of all the people in my world that I work with, you, you always were in my mind. You were one of the finest young men that I ever met. And uh, I just, you know, I just always held you in high regard. And he said, I just wanted to, you know, and I just wanted to, uh, to, to see you again and wanted to talk to you again. And we talked for a long time, you know, and obviously, you know, I, I, I witnessed to him and I tried to tell him uh, about the Lord Jesus Christ. And, you know, he, he, was, he was of the mindset that you didn't have to go to church, that you didn't have to trust Christ, that he could worship God out in the wilderness and the woods and the beautiful mornings, and like so many of them do. And I knew I wasn't getting anywhere with him. I saw him probably the next three years. I made my way there. And, you know, and I, 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 every time I would try to witness to him, he'd just blow me off. Nicely, but, you know, blow me off. And, uh, you know, and we were, we were always were good buddies. We're always good friends. And, you know, and then, you know, then COVID hit and we didn't go home for two years. And uh, when we went back this year, you know, I, I just got caught up in everything and I didn't get a chance to, uh, to call him or talk to him. And then I found out that my sister sent me the obituary that a week ago or so that he passed away. And she sent me the whole obituary. And I love this guy. And, you know, I would do anything in the world to have him saved. And it's, it's hard on my heart because of the fact that, you know, he, 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 he was somebody of the old school that the key word in his life was loyalty. If he was your friend, he was your friend. You don't have many of those today. You know, I'm always, I will always leery people who put one arm around you and say, I'm your friend, but they got a dagger in the other hand. <laughs> they, plenty of those around today, too. So I, I was really burdened over that, and it bothered me. It still bothers me. But I read the obituary, and I thought to myself, this is exactly why I could never win that guy to Christ. At the end of the obituary, we had talked about him working at the Hoovers and being retired from Hoovers and everything. Then at the very end, then he said, if you want to give your condolences, you can go online. But per his request, there will be absolutely no services or no any kind of religious services or preaching. And I thought to myself, that's exactly the way he was. You know what he had done over the years? He'd seared his conscience. He'd come to the place where he actually believed that you could worship God in the woods. That you'd go out on a nice, clear, frosty morning and speak to God in the trees. That's what he actually believed. 
And I know that I'd give him the gospel even back in the old days before I left Canton. I had witnessed to him. That's the one thing I did before I left. I made sure I sat down and I told him the story of Christ. Nothing had changed in all those years. And he had seared his conscience. Greatest guy on the planet. He wasn't a drunk. I don't think he drank anything. He never took drugs. He was as clean upstate man as you ever meet in your life. But he had seared his conscience against the truth. And he died in his sins. Now you would say, how does this verse apply to a Christian? It's easy. And we know from our doctrine that as a Christian, as a Christian who rejects God's word in his life and sears his conscience with a hot iron, you cannot die in your sins. Dying in your sins is an expression for an unsaved man or woman. So this guy died in his sins being unsaved, but God's people who sear their conscience and walk away from God, they won't die in their sins, but my dear friend, you will die with your sins. I've seen so many God's people even while we were here in our 18 years here. And I've seen men or women who I thought had great potential who came for a while and, you know, got going for a while and then, uh, you know, got caught up in, in the world, you know, caught up going to the lake, caught up going here, going here, buying this, buying that, all these things. And suddenly God and the Word of God and church wasn't involved anymore. And next thing you know, they're drinking with the crowd again and they're doing the same things or they're doing this and they're doing that. And, and honestly, I believe that they're as saved as I am. But one of these days, they're going to go meet the Lord because it's appointed unto men once to die and after this the judgment. And I'm telling you right now, they won't die in their sins, but they're going to carry a bucket load with them that they're going to have to give an account for. You see, and all this is taught in Romans chapter 6 and 7. That's the greatest chapter on it. And it basically says that before you're saved, talking about the soul and your flesh, your flesh being the heart of man, but the, uh, I mean the soul being the heart of man, but the flesh being dead to anything, and once they're connected together before you're saved, this is why you can do nothing with God, because your, fle- your soul, your heart, your soul is connected to a dead man. So your dead in trespasses of sin, and when you die, you die in your sins. But that all changed the day you got saved. Now he came down and he circumcised your soul, gave you a new heart from your flesh. And now it's a thing where you're not stuck to a dead man anymore. But we are sure stuck with him. He goes everywhere we go. He's tugging on my arm every time, every day, every minute of the day as he is yours. And he's saying through my spirit, look at this. Listen to this, read this, watch this, do that. And when we do that, we go walking after the things of the world and then we develop an attitude in time about that heart of God that is our new heart. 
And it all comes down that we all reject the cleansing daily, you know, 1 John chapter 1, verse 7 and 9, and we're faithful and just to confess our sins. He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all. Once you forsake that and you start warehousing and stacking up your sins, you're in trouble. Now look at verse 25. This gets better. They say to Jesus, Who art thou? They can't find him anymore. He's standing right in front of them. They have had every witness of the Spirit laid out in the Old Testament to know exactly who he is, and yet they're asking, Who art thou? And I've had God's people in my own church and my own ministry through the years that were saved and on their way to heaven and got so far out that they couldn't even recognize him anymore. You've gotten so far away from that book, you've lost your way and you can't see him in anything. You're in the world up to your eyeballs and you come to a point in time where you sear your conscience with a hot iron. You're like what Timothy, Paul tells Timothy over there in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 13. You've deceived yourself. And he says there's people over there who get worse and worse. They don't get better. In this state, you don't get better. Hey, your body may be set up in a physical sense. If you get a cold, you don't have to go to the doctor because it'll heal itself. You may cut your finger and it will heal itself. You may fall down and skin your knees and, and bleed for a while, but you'll heal yourself. And your natural body is an incredible thing that God made that has a self-healing. But I'm telling you right now, your soul will not heal itself. Your flesh won't heal itself. You have to have the bomb of Gilead. The Word of God, man. <laughs> Somebody says, what kind of cologne is that you got on today, Bob? You're covered in it from head and foot. Yeah, it's the bomb of Gilead. I need it all over my body today. Look at verse 26. They not only can't see who he is, they don't know who he is, but then he says, I have many things to say. Verse 26, but look at verse 27. But they understood him not. See, you get to the point where you don't get anything out of the Bible anymore. You got your warehouse full, full of the things that you love to do, your boats, your motorcycles, your this, your that. You got yourself so filled up. And I'm telling you right now, there is nothing wrong with doing fun things to take off the stress and take off the things of life. If we don't all do it, brother, I know everybody's got their own things to do. Some of you like to hunt. Some of you like to, some of you like to golf. Some of you like to fish. Some of you, those things are vital to keep your sanity, especially in the world that we live in. But there are some people that go so far that they just throw God out the window. And now they've come to the place that he's got so many things he wants to say to his people, but they understand him not. In modern-day Christianity, this is the church of Laodicea, Revelation 3.20. This is our modern-day pastors. This is our modern-day teachers. This is our modern-day religious leaders that you hear on the radio and television all day long. They've done the exact same thing. You know what they've done? They have developed an attitude and seared their conscience to the King James 16.11 author. I'm not going to mince around and say to the Word of God. I'm going to say, your problem is... God gave you a perfect book. You hated it like the scribes and the Pharisees hated Christ and you seared your conscience against it. You spent your whole life getting an education to get out from under its conviction and here you are. And now you're pastoring churches that you're feeding that filth right to your people. 
You see, this is the real answer today why these churches bring in the world's music. Why they bring in, when you go in, they all, most of them have a trained licensed psychologist on staff so he can give you the philosophy of Colossians chapter 2. This is why they all have the teaching that they have uh, and they actually think that God's in it, but actually it's the tradition of men and there's no doctrine. This is why they have come to the place of so many of God's people. Boy, I see it all the time and I just scratch my head. I see people doing things that claim to be saved and honestly, I believe they are saved. But they have gotten so far from the Word of God that relative truth is no longer there. There's Isaiah 5, verse 20. Good is now called evil, and evil is now called good. God's people today are losing touch with God, getting into, their, getting into things that uh, are sin in the Bible and then pretending that it's okay and it's a ministry for God. You've lost your way. This is what every one of us has to look for in our lives. When you begin to lose your way, you're on your way. Now you're on that course that in time, if you don't get a course correction, you'll make the world your all in all, but it'll not be God will be your all in all. Now in time, there'll be no ministry, there'll be no church, no Bible anymore. You will delight yourself in all the things that you love to do, but your delight will not be, as Psalms chapter 1, verse 1 and 2 says, in the Lord. And now you begin, the next step is to isolate your things from the, yourself from the things of God. The people of God, the places where God's people congregate, And now you'll lose complete sight of what the Bible says that God loves and what God hates. And in the Bible, there's seven things that God loves and there's seven things that God hates. And if you had to get a piece of paper and write down what they were today, you couldn't do it if your life depended on it. You know why? Because you simply don't care. Your soul... When you got saved, you got a new heart, has been saved and sealed, Ephesians 4.30. But you developed a bad lifestyle of your flesh through your spirit, walking in the flesh. And now you have an attitude toward God's heart that is inside your heart. And now you look at that and you look at God's heart. You're saved. You're under conviction. You simply say, no thanks. I'm going to take my flesh through my spirit. And I'm going to go against the new heart that God gave me. And I'm going to walk after the flesh. And remember, John chapter 8, verse 34. Whosoever committeth sin is the servant of sin. And you can't see anymore clearly that you're walking after the flesh and not after God. And now you fall in just like the nation of Israel, the Second Timothy chapter 3, verse 5. They had a form of godliness. They were in the temple. They wore the clothes. They said the right talk. They had everything except they denied the power. And you now, maybe or maybe not, you'll still claim to be a Christian. You might even go to church. 
You might put all the great things out there that gives the appearance of godliness, but at the end of the day, you're going your way and God's going his. Now let me show you just how far they have lost their way. And let me show you and me just how far you and I can lose our way. Look at verse 32 through verse 37. And ye shall know the truth, Jesus speaking, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. They answered him, We be Abraham's seed, and were never in bondage to any man. How sayest thou, ye shall be made free? Jesus answered them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, He who ever committeth sin is the servant of sin, and the servant abideth not in the house forever, but the son abideth ever. If the son therefore shall make you free, you shall be free indeed. I know that you are Abraham's seed, but you seek to kill me. Because my word has no place in you. Oh, boy, that's good. There's your fundamental problem. The word of God has no place in our lives anymore. There it is. Mark that. Write it down. Put it backwards on your forehead with indelible ink. So you, you can read it when you look into the mirror. That is the problem. Because my word hath no place in you. Their answer was classic. He says, hey, my word will make you free. What? Oh, I can just see the piety. Oh, I can see the the hypocrisy. What? Why, we're Abraham's seed. We have never been in bondage to any man. Really? How about Pharaoh in Egypt for 430 years? How about the book of Judges where 14 times you were in captivity for 300 years? How about in 537 when the Assyrians came down? How about in 606 when Nebuchadnezzar came down? How about Persia, book of Esther? How about Greece, Daniel chapter 2 with Alexander the Great? And now Rome, look around you. You think you're free? Roman guards and Roman centurions and a Roman governor. They had forgotten where they had come from. And I'm going to tell you something, folks. What a picture of today of God's people who got out so far out, they forget where God has brought you from. Psalm chapter 40 says, I waited patiently for the Lord. And he inclined unto me and heard my cry. He brought me up also out of a horrible pit, out of the miry clay, and set my feet upon a rock and established my goings. And he hath put a new song in my mouth, even praise unto our God, and many shall see it in fear and trust in the Lord. Hey, I'm not, I I, I told you Thursday night, I'm the biggest message you ever saw in your life. Don't follow me as an example for anything. But I am telling you right now, I got a lot of problems. I'm an idiot. I do a lot of stupid things, but I'll tell you one thing that separates me from most of God's people. I never got over the day he saved me. Amen. He changed my life. Yeah, I'm a mess. I still make dumb choices. I still do dumb things. But I'll tell you what. I'll never, never forget 
where I was in that miry clay, in that horrible pit. And God shouldn't have done it. He had no reason to do it. He reached down and he pulled me out and he set me upon a rock. You may have forgotten that day in your life. I never will. I never will. The Bible tells us that there's three infirmities that we all have. Romans chapter 6, that great chapter, tells us that the first infirmity in verse 19 is our flesh. Romans chapter 8, verse 26, tells us that the second infirmity that we have is we don't know how to pray. And then Psalm 77, verse 10, tells us that the third infirmity, we always forget what God has done for us. God help us. You know where the pathway leads to a heart that gets seared with a hot conscience that you don't care anymore? That the word of, You know where that path starts? It starts with you forgetting what God did for you. You see, once you forget what God did for you, you'll forget what the church did for you. Then you'll forget what your people in the church have done for you. And pretty soon you won't care about nothing. You know why? Because you've taken that hot iron on that fire and you just seared your conscience that the Word of God is no longer in you. Listen. When you as a child of God or an unsaved man, it doesn't matter, you stay in sin, in time you'll develop a mindset against God's heart just like Israel did and you will sear your conscience and you'll lose your perspective of good and evil. You see all these people around are doing some of the stupidest, ungodly things that you could ever imagine in your life under the name of God and Christianity, and everybody is just absolutely fine with it. You know what you've done? You've lost your perspective of good and evil. And in time, you will get so far away from God that you, 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 you may never lose your salvation, but you lose anything that God has for you. And as 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 15 says, that the judgment seat of Christ, you'll be saved, yet so as by the fire. You'll lose everything that you have. Now, do you want to know what the first warning sign is that you are headed to a seared conscience? I feel obligated to give this to you. It'll be your rejection of the preaching of the Word of God. You hearing a preacher preach that book right down the middle, boy, and he puts it right to you, and you leave with no conviction whatsoever. Now, I'm a passionate preacher. I'm not one of these guys that looks like he took his suit to get dry cleaned, and they did him too. I'm passionate about what I believe. And I get excited about what God has done for me. Now, I appreciate the amens and would have liked a few more, but it's okay. But the bottom line is, people misread that sometimes. I've had you bring visitors to church, and this is not a criticism. I totally get it. You've brought visitors to church, and they'll come, you know, and they'll, they'll hear me preach, and you'll go out and say, well, how'd you like it? And you'll say, if I come back next week, will he still be angry? 
What's, what's he mad about? And, and I totally get that, and I understand that. But I'm not mad about anything. I'm just passionate. But, you know, let me show you how people don't get it. The Chiefs are playing football today, and there'll be 77,000 people watching that game. You want to see people go crazy for their passion being football? Does anybody think they're mad? I mean, you will be when they lose today. <laughs> I, see a, I see a stark decline in chief jerseys today. <clears throat> the Lord has spoken. <laughs> he, he just... Hey, he just praised himself. I mean, I, yeah, yeah, I just saw him last night. Eyes of fire. Ooh. And nobody will think they're mad about anything. They're fans. You know what the word fan comes from? It comes from the word fanatic. They're, fan, they're fanatics about football. I'm not a map. You know what? I, I, you know, hey, I, when I was downstairs and my wife would be watching Tootie Mahooty, her quarterback. She doesn't care much about him anymore. But when she was up there, she'd be wearing her Chiefs shirt with 15 on it. She'd have his picture all over the place, you know, and candles burning, you know. And I even caught her one time with beads, you know. <laughs> and uh, it's a thing where, you know, I was downstairs, and, you know, I was laying on the couch with Daisy, the dog, and uh, all of a sudden you'd hear the, the Daisy perk up. You'd hear these screams coming from upstairs and stomping on the floor. And, uh, you know, I would think, oh, boy, what did I do now? No, then I would remember the game's on, see. And uh, now she's kind of lost that. Now, but look out when Ohio State plays. <laughs> Got anything to say about Ohio State? She's sitting right there. She'll throw something at you. <laughs> when Ohio State plays, it's the same thing. I mean, I'm surprised she didn't have an Ohio State shirt on today. But anyway, and it's a thing where I get that. And I don't get upset about 77,000 people. Why are you upset about me? Because I'm passionate about the God and the Word of God. I mean, come on, guys. Give me a break. I give you one. I mean, it's okay. I don't walk up there and hear somebody just scored a touchdown and 77,000 people going crazy and say, what are they mad about? (laughs) I understand. They're passionate. You know what I'm passionate about? Right here. The rest of it don't matter to me. I mean, I, I, I like to watch them, and I'm all into it, but you know what? Hey, end of the day. So I'm telling you. You know, I, when I preach, I go, after, I go after a person's heart. I do. I preach to their heart. A lot of preachers, they preach like a shotgun. They just scatter for everybody. I, I, I'm, a, I'm a high-powered rifle with telescopic sights. Dave Phillips is one of my heroes in life, and I think he's a great guy. And he does with a rifle at 600 yards what I do with a Bible when I preach. He'll put three right through a two-inch square. And my goal today is aiming at your two-inch square of your heart and put as many through there as I can because that's where you get somebody, see? And when you can hear solid, hot, Bible-based preaching, you'll do one of five things with it. You know, we live in a, and I get this, but we live in a non-offensive Christianity today. Have you seen the new ad on TV about somebody getting saved? Uh, yeah, it's, it's all over the place, and, it, and, they, and it, I love it. It says, 
Uh, heaven. This is a, salvation. Heaven or not. Now, to most people, that sounds like, wow, that's really good. To me, that's the most whiny thing you could do. You know what? It isn't heaven or not. It's heaven or hell. But you don't want to put hell up there because it's offensive. So you say heaven or not. Not what? No lunch? No dinner? Heaven or what? Heaven or not? No, no, no. It's heaven or hell. But you wouldn't be able to get on the thing and do that. I'd get one that said Jesus or Muhammad. We'd really get going on that one. See, when you hear solid preaching, you're going to do one of five things. One, and we're all guilty of this. First thing you're going to do is think of that person that this really applies to. (laughs) Well, I hope so-and-so is listening to that. I hope too because you're not. Well, so-and-so needs that message. I don't have a time. Well, you know what? I So-and-so needed to be at church today to hear that message. Well, you were at church. Did you hear it? Amen. Okay. That's the first thing we like to do. Second thing we like to do, we never let it touch us. We rationalize our situation. We justify what we're doing because we've moved out of the scope of the Bible. The third thing that we do is you get mad at the messenger. Well, who does he think he is? Oh, he's God's man who's preaching you the Bible. Well, hey, I have the right to say those kind of things. Well, you know what? Hey, you know what? Everybody, you had a, you know, I, I, I love people who, 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 who leave, leave any church, but they leave this church. And when they go out of here, they'll start telling people, well, this church is terrible. This church is that. This church is a cult. This church does this, this, or that. And you know what? If somebody would just step back and see, wow, about 230, 40 people think it's okay. One person doesn't like it. Now, am I going to judge everything that's going on by one person who, when I look at their life, is like a flat tire on a 74 Volkswagen bus? No. But that's what we are. See, that's what we do today. Now, we get mad at the messenger. We don't like the message. It hit me the wrong way. The fourth thing, you get convicted about it and you leave, but like the scribes and the Pharisees, you never change. Now, the fifth one, I just throw it in as last, is because the fifth one is maybe you'll allow God to use it to change who you are. You know, the Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 31 through 32, that the reason why God gave us the churches and pastors and preachers, that when you went to church or you went to Bible study or you went whenever, and some guy got up there and preached it hot and heavy right down the line, that you'd get convicted about it, that you'd judge yourself and get the sin out of your life so God wouldn't have to come down and deal with you personally. So when somebody gets mad at the preacher and uh, they walk out the door, all you're doing is giving God an open invitation to meet you on 435 with a semi coming the wrong way on the right way and hitting you head on. I mean, it's just that simple. Proverbs chapter 27, verse 7 says, The full soul loatheth a honeycomb, but to the hungry soul every bitter thing is sweet. You see, you've got to get to the place where the key word there is every bitter thing, not the things you choose, every bitter thing. You're not going to be every message you, that you like, and most of the time you don't like it. I don't like it because you just hit me where... It's like going to the dentist, and he doesn't give you any Novocaine yet because he's probing to see where the bad tooth is, and he takes that little thing and he starts going down the middle of your teeth. He will know in a heartbeat when he hit the wrong one. And that's what preaching is. 
you all got your mouth open today and I got my little metal thing and I'm just popping teeth and pretty soon you'll squawk because I hit where it is. You know what? And the dentist, you, you sue him. But for me, you ought to say, praise the Lord. That's what I needed. Amen. That one verse will say it all about every one of us. How, how do you accept the preaching of God's truth and his word when it hits you right between the eyes and it deals in your conscience and brings about conviction. Do you sear it? Do you change? Or do you leave the church and just walk away like the scribes of the Pharisees and they did? Some things never change. Hey, after years and years of dealing with people, I can tell you right now, not all, not all the walkers are on the series of The Walking Dead. Many of God's people hear it and they walk. They don't want to face the reality. And it's a simple pattern. You turn off preaching. You begin to develop the wrong attitude in your spirit toward the heart of God. He convicts you about it. For a while it bothers you, but then in time, because you keep going that way, something or somebody becomes more important than church on Sunday. Something or somebody uh, becomes more important than your Bible study. Something or somebody becomes more important than ministry. Something or somebody becomes more important than your Bible. Something or somebody becomes more important than your prayer life. And pretty soon one day you wake up and God is nowhere to be found in your life and you're wondering what in the world is going on in my world? I lost this, I lost that, where's this, where's that? And God is nowhere to be found. And yet you're saved and on your way to heaven. You now have seared your conscience with a hard iron and nothing Nothing will touch you now. And now the broken cycle will start in your life with your kids, with your marriage, with your family, and in time, everything and everybody around you. And where serving God was once a great gain for you, now not serving Him will be great loss. And yet, God's people will still hold in many cases to that form of godliness uh, but you, uh, you have seared your conscience a long time ago. Now, the answer to all this quickly is, is found in 8.3. And you shall be know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Free from what? Free from the bondage of the flesh of your sin. Romans chapter 6. When you got saved, he quickened you with him, and now you don't have to serve sin any longer. You do not have to be the servant of sin. There's a process for you to crucify yourself, and, uh, you know, I've always liked the fact that he said, we are crucif- I am crucified with Christ, never let I live. Let not I, but Christ liveth in me. And we talk about crucifying yourself. Uh, to the, uh, and, and somebody says, well, what does that mean? It means that you, you're now dead to your flesh. And you can do that if you take your spirit and fill it with the things of God and then put that direction toward the heart of God. But I'm telling you something. God is not going to come down and crucify you. They may crucify him for you. But you ever stop about that you're going to be crucified? Well, you can do this. You can take a hammer and nail and you can get this nail in. And then you can get that nail in and that nail in. But now who's going to put the nail in this one? You see, they crucified him for you. You have to crucify yourself for him. Has to be your choice. No man can crucify you. They crucified my Savior for me. But I have to crucify myself, my flesh for him. Nobody can do it for me.
Now, we live in a world that is completely taken over by the rights of people. This is the mark of the Laodicean church age, which means rights of people. So we have today big arguments on social rights, human rights, civil rights. We have black lives matter, white lives matter, all lives matter. We have race issues in America over slavery and the terrible things that were done in this country for 200 plus years uh, and it's a real issue today. People just can't move on with the f- freedom that they got uh, when the Civil War was over and they were freed. And, and I get it. In spite of that, there have been many wrongs, many injustices done. And I, I, I think it's absolutely deplorable, terrible. And I think that, uh, that uh, in many ways, in many cases, uh, people have a real legitimate... Um, of the injustices that were done. I get that. And that only serves to prove my point. Slavery is wrong. But unfortunately, we like to think that the only slaves that ever existed was in this country before the Civil War. Slavery is the history of world civilization. Now, let's just be honest. Why does slavery come into the world? It came in in Genesis chapter 3. Slavery came into this world because sin came into this world. And so man in an unsafe state wants to slave other men and other women. That's just the way it has been that way all down through history. It doesn't make it right. It makes it terribly wrong. But it shows you why it started. And my point is simply this. If that's how it started, if slavery started with a man losing the image of God, let me show you how you really stop slavery. And if history teaches us anything, it teaches us that real freedom, no matter what your color is, doesn't come from the Emancipation Proclamation. Because for over 200 years since its end, it's still an issue with many individuals. Clearly showing us that real freedom is not about setting a man's flesh free. That'll only lead to another bondage. If you're not under a cotton pick and cotton picker down in the south and you get free, you'll come under the bondage of heroin, crack cocaine, alcohol, all those things we know and love. It'll be some other bondage because setting a man's flesh free is not the answer. Because man will just go to another bondage. No, no. Real freedom comes only through the salvation of our soul, through the Word of God, that with through the truth of God will truly make all men free. How? By God giving him a new heart. That he sees the world's slavery and all the sinful things as God sees it. When you just flee as fresh, he sees it that, but he'll find something else. He needs to have a real change. That change has to be a heart. It has to be his soul. When that happens, a man gets sealed. He gets sealed with his soul. He gets separated from his flesh, giving him a new heart, the heart of God. And now, you might know, everything... (coughs) Everything in the Bible that is truly a Bible concept 
the world takes and makes it a world concept, doesn't it? In the Bible, you have a place called Beersheba. Beersheba was a place of great, clear, pure water. So when the world wants to take that concept, they will tell you that our beer is greater because of the water we use. See? Now you take slavery. Unregenerate man takes slavery and makes it all his fellow man that he can be slaves unto him. And when we get set free from that and we realize now that, you know, that we are free from sin and all of that stuff, that doesn't take away the biblical concept of slavery. Because if you're here this morning and you're saved, the Bible says you've been bought with a price. What? Know you not your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which you have of God. You're not your own. You're bought with a price. You don't have any rights. I listen to these people on here and, you know, uh, we, we, we want our rights. We want our rights. You know what? The only rights we all have is to die and go to hell and burn like a torch for all of eternity, screaming our lungs out like the guy. You got grace. For God so loved the world. He came down when he didn't have to. He shouldn't have. First question I got when I get to heaven is not, you know, is God real? Is the King James Bible real? I'm going to ask, what in the world does you want with anything like me? But he did. And you know what? He set me free. Then he set you free. Ah, he set me free to enslave me. <laughs> How'd that work for you for your theology? <laughs> He set me free and then put the shackles on me. Oh, but what a good master he is. I don't have a right to decide what I'm going to do with my life. I have a right to decide this or right to decide that. I'm a bond slave. I have a right to say I'm going here, I'm going to go do this. Hey, when I yield my spirit to the things of God and that spirit lines up with God's spirit and it feeds the, the, my, 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 uh, my spirit and then it puts me in line with God's heart to do what God wants me to do and I protect that, I guard that, I keep that, you'll never be out of touch with what God wants you to do. The greatest example of that is Philip. We look at the Ethiopian eunuch and we think that, that he was the real slave. He was a slave of man. The real slavery is Philip. You notice when God told him to go and do what he was doing, Philip never argued. Philip was in the middle of a great revival in Samaria. He could have said, well, Lord, you don't understand. You got one black guy over here in the desert, and I got 9,000 people I got to preach to this afternoon. He never even balked. He just went where God told him to go. And when God said, go to that man, he ran. Now, most of God's people, when God tells them to do something, yes, they will run. You just run the wrong way. We're slaves. We were set free, be put in bondage. But boy, I'll tell you what, it sure is fun, isn't it, man? I'll tell you what, it's a great thing. And see, these are things you need to understand, and you need to work in your heart and your life because it will come out of nowhere. It'll start so subtle, it'll be such a, 
It'll be like every, you know those raging forest fires out there in California and Washington that burn millions and millions of acres. We look at them burning, and many times we get so consumed with a burning fire of eating up the acres, we forget that it all started with one little match. And you're getting out of fellowship and sharing that conscience will turn into a roaring forest fire, but it'll all start with one little match. Guard your heart. Help each other. Keep true to the heart of God. The central part of us is our soul where God wants to do everything through us in a spiritual body and He can bring our flesh into submission to do it. But that's where it starts. That's why it's called the heart of man because that's where it started. That's where it starts. Well, we'll hold up there. Don't forget now. Next